This is Consuming Culture, and I'm Kat McShane. I'm a journalist and filmmaker, and this podcast is all about how and why culture gets made, told through the eyes of the people who make it. Sounds simple, right? Well, I'm hoping this series gives some pretty unique insights into what it means to be an artist when the big issues of the day, like wealth inequality, advances in technology, and people-powered social movements are fundamentally altering the way culture is made, consumed, and valued. This programme's guest is someone I'm very closely connected to. I'm speaking to Sophie Robinson, a poet known for exposing her most vulnerable moments and painful experiences on the page. I went to see Sophie just before Christmas. It was a big moment for both of us. So I'm just going to introduce Sophie uh, now. Um, it feels a bit weird, doesn't it, saying introducing you in front of you? Anyway, uh, Sophie Robinson is a poet and more latterly a prose writer who teaches creative writing at the University of East Anglia. Her work is feminist, political, funny and dark, using references accessible to all readers, from pop culture and online interactions to nature at its most visceral. But most of all, her work overflows with feelings, especially of sadness, whether because of failed relationships addiction or dislocation and loneliness. Sophie, thanks very much for having me here. Um, This is definitely a novel experience for both of us and to get this out of the way I should say that me and Sophie were in a relationship for uh, many years until about um, five years ago. So with the series being about purging it seemed a good fit to ask to speak to you uh, as someone who sort of expels her experiences and feelings in their work uh, including about our own relationship, but I think we might touch on that uh, later on. But it's good to good to be here. Yeah, and this is the first time we've seen each other face to face for a good couple of years. Um, so yeah, this is an interesting, nerve wracking way to finish off the year. <laughs> okay, someone did actually say to me, "Are you just trying to punish yourself at the moment <laughs> by trying to experience as many many feelings as possible before the year is out?" Yeah, yeah, get them all done. Yeah, no, no feelings, twenty twenty one. Do you um do you consider yourself to be a confessional poet? What does that mean to you even? Um it's interesting because not to get too like dry about it, but um my background is in experimental work and um experimental work that that came about in like almost like in opposition to traditional confessional writing. Um but I do think of myself increasingly as a confessional poet and like sort of I guess new confessional, but it's weird, isn't it? Because confession implies shame and and like sin and whatever and has like I think some like um probably some like colonial and homophobic uh and misogynistic transphobic undertones um so yeah because I'm not really a catholic um but yeah I think confessional work in terms of thinking about like um intimacy and directness and what can't Mm. be said elsewhere um I am definitely engaging in that and I'm really interested in like um earnestness and um directness and um I think that's one of my difficulties as a human being and one of my strengths as a writer I'm interested in pushing the boundaries of what can and can't be said but I'm also interested in I guess intimacy and I think I I, yeah I think I would define my work as intimate an Mm. intimate experience is what I'm trying to create both in confronting myself through the process of writing and in the ways in which I'm um communicating with an imagined reader and yeah I definitely um in my prose and in my poetry um now I'm interested in intimacy and vulnerability and those things as, as a strength and those things as um helping to forge quite a strong relationship between me and a readership. When did you uh, first start writing poetry about your personal experiences? I began writing poetry about my personal experiences when I was 21. So I did um, an undergrad degree in English literature and during that time um, I got really interested in the avant-garde and experimental work and and work that was quite like process-based. So stuff like uh, William Burroughs's cut-ups or collage techniques and things like that and I was really really interested in like found texts and um, the language school and, and and stuff that um, you know writing that really didn't come from this idea of the earnest self when I was younger I found that really like re- <laughs> repulsive um, and that definitely is partly to do with aesthetics but and, and what was really like you know the kind of postmodern 
literature I was reading and the stuff that was like really trendy at the time and the stuff my lecturers told me was good. But I think it was also about me not wanting to confront myself. Um, and the first time I started writing about my personal experiences was towards the end of a master's programme in experimental poetry. And my girlfriend of four years died of a brain hemorrhage. And I was supposed to be doing this project for my master's dissertation that was all about um, cyborgs and robots and found text. It was a, like a very like experimental, mm. really influenced by things like Kathy Acker. Um, and I couldn't. And I was just reading, I, um, you know, my partner died and I was really grief stricken and I couldn't stop reading Rilke's Do We Know Elegies and I ended up writing a sonnet cycle um, about my grief and about her death. And that was the first time that I really felt like writing was like a life or death thing for me. And I don't think it's a coincidence that that was the thing that kind of helped me launch a career, I guess. People often think about the sonnet, I suppose, in terms of love. Is it, mm. Was there anything kind of, a sonnet's often associated with grief as well? Was that also like a kind of tried and tested route in order to sort of organise your feelings into the sort of poetry that could then be published? Yeah, I, I mean, um, no, sonnets don't have that same history, that same like elegiac history. But I think that I really needed the strictness of the form of a sonnet. Because what I really like about it is like, um, it's just such a... A box it's like a little container and then sonnets look like boxes on the page um and I just needed that um I needed the brevity of a sonnet and I needed to have a syllable count and I needed to have a line length count and that was the thing that enabled me to turn these like pages and pages and pages and pages of um like loose associative stream of consciousness writing into um these like containers um so yeah I was drawn to the sonnet form Partly because of its history as a love poem, uh, and, and as a way of like, as its history is, I guess, as like a coded um, form of like queer love as well through Shakespeare. But uh, yeah, I wrote a cycle of ten of them, so they all kind of talk to each other and follow on from each other. Um, but yeah, I just needed that container. I was also reading a lot of Bernadette Mayer, who's a poet I love and I absolutely adore her sonnets and what she does with the sonnets and the way she kind of pushes to the limits of the sonnet. So yeah, those were my that was my reasoning behind choosing the sonnet it was partly practical and partly deliberately about that history of it being um, a way of writing coded love poems because that relationship was my f- my first big love and um, she was quite in the closet I guess and it wasn't that long ago but in some ways it was because it was a different time yeah. like um, we were around the same age and and, and um, yeah in the early 2000s it, it was different we still had a lot of rights mm. and I think that we were still as queer people like much appearing much more in the cultural imaginary than we were but um I feel like there was more stigma when we got together which was in 2003 than there is now um and yeah there was a little bit I think of of regret and shame on my part that I that we weren't more public about the ways in which we loved each other um that her parents didn't know um that that I never really got to tell her a lot of things I wanted to tell her um and so in a way I was really interested in writing these love poems for her because, um, like, posthumously, because mm. I didn't get to write them for her while she was alive. How do you get started on a poem? Is it always different? I have, like, two categories of poem. So I have a poem... I have, like, the poems that take longer, which and they usually come from a sentence or an idea or a mood or an image, and then they kind of build up over time, and sometimes two poems will become one poem or... Um, one poem will end up getting split up into three poems um whatever so I have that kind of like gradual process um where I'm keeping notes on my phone and in my notebooks and I end up kind of like kind of splicing things together and and trying to work on work on something and make it coherent Um, and then I have the other kind of poem um which I always feel self-conscious about describing but honestly like a lot of my favorite poems and my best poems just come out in one go um and don't require that much editing and I just write them all at once um and I feel self-conscious saying that as a creative writing teacher because um, <laughs> I feel that that's not what we teach. That's not how we teach. We don't, but, and it also can't be taught, right? Mm. Like, I don't think it's like, um, I, don't, I don't know why, I don't know why they come out like that. But yeah, they're like um, a lot of my favourite poems from Rabbit are just all in one go. Like over the course of one evening, yeah. usually. One evening or one day. Uh, and it comes upon me and I have mm. to write it and I mm. can't, it's like an itch, I can't and I have to like at the soonest opportunity I can I have to just sit down and write it 
Yeah. Yeah, and it gets edited, but um, not significantly. So I was, I, I was actually thinking this morning on my way here, I was thinking about some poems that seems like a sort of collection of experiences built up over time. Like, I was just thinking about that poem that's in Rabbit, something like The Biggest Loser. Hmm. Seems sort of be, to be quite straightforwardly about the multiple times you as an ordinary woman have been sexually assaulted. Uh, and it's this collection of experiences built up over time. Um, can you remember what made you think, OK, I'm going to put these all together and turn it into a poem? And I'm thinking of this as in comparison to others of your poems, which are much more oblique, where it's really like a collection of quite disparate experiences and imagery mm. and politics, where there's, it, they seem much more open to interpretation. Mm. And, you know, as a reader, you would have to read it several times and it's up to you to see like what you think is going on in there and how it applies to you. Whereas something mm. like The Biggest Loser, there is no question about what that is about. Yeah, I knew I wanted to write about that experience, but I also knew that... I wanted it to be boring and artless. Like, it's it's the least poemy poem in Rabbit, mm. because it's just a list. Um, and in some ways, that's kind of tapping into... In some ways, I think it's really accessible. In other ways, it's tapping into um, the New York school. I love the way they have... Like, Biggest Loser has quite short lines, and I love the way that um, the New York school will, will make something poemy by breaking up the line and have these ticker tape really short lines and I'm very influenced by them and they always with the New York school it's really comforting because what the New York school poets do is like if they don't know where to start they just start with where they are so you just Mm -hmm. start by describing what's right in front of you and then you get to what you want to get to and it grounds a reader in like the immediate environment of the poem before you kind of take them on this windy journey into your psychic space um but yeah I wanted to feel it to feel boring and artless and I wanted I wanted I wanted the speaker to seem like annoyed (laughs) <laughs> because um that is i think that is the that is the experience of of being in a living in a in a misogynistic society and experiencing like misogynistic microaggressions that um a, and experiencing the um disconnect between how something like rape and sexual assault is is presented um as like a kind of stranger danger thing or you know thing being grabbed in a dark alley versus our very boring everyday experiences of being groped on the tube um, or um, felt up at a bar, or um, in a drunken encounter with someone where you you haven't consented to a sex act, um, and yeah, I wanted to get across how boring it was and how normal it was too, because mm. I knew that I would have a lot of people reading who would have similar experiences to me, um, and it's weird too because I think some I know a couple of people who 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 really latched onto that poem as being about. Um, how much trauma I've experienced but yeah I whilst I do think I am someone who's experienced a lot of trauma I actually think my experience of sexual violence as related in that poem is very normal mm. and I think that a lot of people could add up a bunch of times where they've you know they could they could count up a bunch of times where those kind of micro and macro aggressions sexually have, have happened to them and it's boring yeah, yeah yeah and did you get people getting in touch with you afterwards to say I read that poem and it really um I chimed with it. Yeah, for sure. People did come forward. Um, but mostly when people want to talk to me about Rabbit, the stuff that they really relate to is like the um, what you said in your introduction, the um, the sadness and the loneliness. <laughs> and the... Um, I'm just thinking of this line in The Office where Michael says, <laughs> it's, it's not the horniness, it's the loneliness. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel like that should be a tagline for Rabbit. But yeah, the, most of what people relate to is... Um, the, the suicidal ideations, the addiction, the um, the tragedy and the quirks of human existence that I'm trying to kind of describe, particularly in the third section. Yeah, let's talk a bit about Rabbit, because that Rabbit comes along quite a long time after um, the previous book. It's like six years or something between the... How many years is it between... The, the Institute of Our Love and Disrepair. Um, seven years. Why did it take so long? Well... A lot of reasons. First of all, I had put the book together um, about three years before Rabbit came out, and it was called The Lives of Perfect Creatures. Um, And I wrote most of it while we were in a relationship. Um, So um, my previous book, The Institute of Our Love and Disrepair, came out at the beginning of our relationship, I think. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And Rabbit came out after after we'd broken up. Yeah. Um, So in between those times, I was in a relationship. Um, I had got a full-time job in academia 
we were moving around a bit for a while. I was trying to live between Newcastle and London. Um, and during that time, as you know, um, I um, went from being someone who enjoyed partying to someone who was um, an alcoholic and a cocaine addict and a drug addict. And um, that really takes its toll on your creative production. Mm-hmm. I had always been someone, as you know, from the beginning of our relationship, had always been someone who like really enjoyed staying up late writing sometimes. But I just, a lot of what I wrote during that time, as you can imagine, especially towards the end, I was quite kind of addled, you know, like my brain was really fried and I wasn't writing good work anymore. Um, so yeah, I think it was partly that. It was partly that um, it was like a bunch of difficult life circumstances, some nice life circumstances. Mm. Um, and um, it was partly that... The, that um, nobody really wanted the book in its old form mm. so um it, it was a book called the lives of perfect creatures and it was like the first one and a half sections of rabbit yeah. plus a bunch of other work yeah and yeah. um people weren't digging it i sent it to maybe 17 or 18 publishers i think and it uh, um people said nice things about it but nobody wanted to publish it um and i was also kind of strung along by a mainstream publisher for a while who said they wanted to do it but they just weren't ever committing um and in the end, uh, Nathan Hamilton um, from Boiler House had asked me like three or four times that he want, that said that he wanted to do a book with Boiler House. Um, and I'd said no, because I, um, Nathan's my friend and Boiler House Press is based in Norwich and it's based at UEA where I work. And it felt like the literary equivalent of like your mum running something off on the photocopier for you. <laughs> because I really respected Boiler House as a press, but yeah. it just felt like, yeah. I was like, I don't need your pity publishing um actually Nathan did a great job with the book and he was the one that helped me with the title and we we restructured the whole thing together and he's a great editor and I had a really good experience and I think it like looks like a beautiful book as well and so I wouldn't change anything now and I think it's a much better book but yeah basically first of all my my addictions took over um for a couple of years and I wasn't writing good work um and second of all um I had written a book that that my heart wasn't completely in. I tried to kind of... Is that because you felt like you had to publish some yeah. things? Like, for your own career, that it was like, if I, you know, how I'm, like, I'm going to disappear into obscurity if I don't... Yes, definitely. Like, the time when we first got together, my career was going... My career was on a real uptick. Like, mm-hmm. I was... Um, I had just done a six-month residency at the Victorian Albert Museum. I was featured in the Independence One to Watch. Do you remember that? We went for, like, Celebratory Fantas afterwards. Yeah, and a fry up. And a fry up, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, at that cafe in Clapton. <laughs> more, innocent, more innocent ways of celebrating in those days. Yeah, oh, <laughs> I know, yeah. Um, yeah, that cafe we, we used to go to, it was like our second choice cafe. Our first choice cafe was the Ginger Pig. Yeah, it was a cut above. Yeah. The Ginger Pig. That was Mess really good. Cafe. Mess Cafe, head. yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was like six quid fry up. Yeah. Fanta, perfect. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Like pink sausages, yeah. <laughs> you probably wouldn't eat them now. No, <laughs> you know those places are right if you go for the veggie. I'm never going to go for the veggie. Oh, I know. I don't mind a I don't mind a frozen like a frozen Linda McCartney sausage. Oh, um, yeah. a few some baked beans in a tin. Yeah, basically paying someone to like warm up warm up a bunch of Linda McCartneys for you. <laughs> um, but I do really remember. I do remember that, of course, when you were uh, at that point. And I can only sort of imagine, having never experienced young success, that, that would um, create a lot of pressure on you yeah. to keep that uh, momentum going. Yeah. Um, but then sometimes, I guess it's not always the, like, a lot of these things are about timing. They are. And I also, I threw away a lot of opportunities when I was younger because I didn't realise what was being handed to me. Yes. Really bad at, like, replying to emails. Up and like the, the Victorian Albert Museum was so great to me and I just like never followed up with them like mm. after my residency they offered me all of this follow up stuff and I never took them up on it um, and I would you know a magazine would write to me and ask me for a poem and I just wouldn't reply to the email and I didn't really know how to handle the very small amount of fame that I had mm. um, and I felt a bit um, out of my depth I was really out of my depth when my first book came out especially because I was only 22 yes um, and um I just remember it constantly, like, at readings and stuff, people always just being like, she was born in 1985, can you believe that? I've got T-shirts older than this girl, you know? And, um, yeah, in those seven years, uh, Jack Underwood calls them my my wilderness years. Sometimes life takes over and, 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 like, just, like, surviving and earning a living and keeping a relationship alive and having 
friendships just takes up all your time and that's okay I think mm -hmm. I gave myself a really hard time about it but when mm -hmm. Rabbit came it meant that when Rabbit came out I was so grateful the book launch was great I was sober I was so proud of myself I was so proud of the book but I also felt like quite kind of humble and grateful and um, I think I'm in a much better much more balanced place with my career now and I and I, I feel as though um, those wilderness years taught me to um, really appreciate what I'd had before and maybe what I took for granted a little bit and I had to have every every bad thing that happened to me during those years of really bottoming out with addiction and mental health stuff and our breakup and yeah, just really like um, sad, tragic times. And we did try, we tried our, I think we, we really tried our best to look after each other and I'm mm. glad that we did that because it means that we can still be friends. Um, but yeah, all of that really hard, horrible stuff had to happen for Rabbit to happen, so yeah. Okay, let's talk a bit about how you change as a writer across Rabbit because I think we're gonna... Um... Oh, yeah, yeah, go for it. Yeah. Um, Sophie's just rolling a, a cigarette for herself. This is a very nerve-wracking situation. What's so nerve-wracking about it? Um, I, yeah, I'm always nervous with interviews. I always think I sound really um, stupid. I was, I'm, always, I'm always worried I'm going to say something that's like um, an overshare. Uh, at this stage yeah. you're still afraid <laughs> you're oversharing yeah I'm still afraid that I'm oversharing um, but also yeah um, we haven't seen each other for a little while um, I don't I haven't seen many people in 2020 yeah um, so we're catching up yeah. and uh, yeah I mean it could have been loaded between us and obviously we're being quite brave I think in kind of going for it yeah and at least I'm in my own home so I can um, chain smoke and nervously strike the cats guzzle diet coke as is my want i'm surprised that you're so nervous actually yeah i would have think that as a poet right you have been reading out your work for years and years and years also um you work in education so you're mm. used to presenting to students all the time and explaining your work plus you do kind of other other things around that whether that's sort of workshops or talks or whatever so it's sort of interesting isn't it that when you and it's probably quite common amongst artists is that actually people still have all of that nervousness yeah. around, uh, I guess, around making yourself vulnerable. Yeah. And is that, so is it that you feel more comfortable writing about your intimate experiences and vulnerability than you do talking about them? What, why are you still so sort of nervous, do you think? Um, my nervousness actually came about um, with my sobriety. Um, so I think when we were together... I was um, very confident standing up and talking in front of people and I did it a lot from the beginning of my like career doing like open mic nights or and um, sharing my work like, so from from the age of about 19 onwards I always needed to have two glasses of wine I think I had this rule two minimum three maximum more than three and I was a bit of a mess and I didn't realize how much alcohol and and cocaine were ways of me masking my anxiety um, and after I got sober I got diagnosed with an anxiety disorder and I'd always had mental health issues and have been diagnosed with various things over the years, but I've been on and off various anxiety medications since I got sober. And for a, for the first year after I got sober, between uh, when I got sober and when, when Rabbit came out, um, I didn't do any public readings. I, I did a few and I had these such severe panic attacks that I would go blind. Like my blood pressure oh. would go so high that it would cut off my ocular nerve mm, or something. Mm. And I would go temporarily blind. Mm. It was like time slowed down. I thought I was like about to be, it felt like I was about to be murdered or something. Just to talk about Rabbit more, you know, the poems in there span a really long period of, of time. Um, and as you say, sort of cover a broad range of uh, experiences in your life. The book is... Um, split into three sections mm -hmm. is it is it arranged thematically or is it arranged across time across time yeah um so the first section is um was written at the end of my 20s last two three years of my 20s yeah um whilst i was living in london with you and um uh it was sort of before and during my kind of full-blown addiction uh, which kind of manifested, I think, when I was around 28 was when my behaviour started to get quite kind of out of control. Um, the second section was the process of me getting sober. Um, right. So I moved to Norwich, um, uh, really kind of hit rock bottom um, with alcohol and drugs. Um, I thought I'd done that in London, but uh, I actually managed to 
dig a bit deeper. Um, <laughs> and it was whilst we were breaking up and I was getting sober um, was the second section. Um, and the third section was written um, during my first year of sobriety um, and a very ill-advised affair I had um, that was a kind of a rebound affair with someone who was much older than me. Um, and then um, our the kind of disintegration of that affair and um, my relapse and subsequent recover second recovery mm, yeah mm. so that's the kind of um narrative arc of it i guess um but i also think that the the um part of the decision to divide it into three sections i do feel like each section feels different yeah um so in the f- the first section the poems are um shorter and more discreet not discreet as in um uh, subtle but discreet because <laughs> my poems aren't subtle but discreet <laughs> as in like um, I think each poem has a very s- separate feel um, and um, I was more concerned with, with form and I was still really interested in the sonnets so there's a couple of sonnets in there and um, uh, yeah the, the poems are younger I think mm. um, and then the second section um, the thing that holds the second section together is this long poem called Denial which was which I wrote in my first month of sobriety when I just did not know what to do with myself. Um, so the second section is a lot about um, repetition, obsession, um, and um, uh, discomfort. I think and and shifting and change. And then the third section is me really, um, I guess, getting to know myself, um, but um, being in this kind of like wild new life of being more awake than I'd ever been before. Um, and there are pluses and minuses to that. Um, and yeah, confronting myself, I think, a lot more than I do in the other two sections. Um, and the rabbit comes and goes, kind of hops around in all the poems. Um, and the, the, the figure of the rabbit stands in for a lot of things. Like I'm chasing the rabbit through the poems. Hmm. Um, and the rabbit is myself the rabbit is addiction the rabbit the feeling of chasing the rabbit is also addiction the idea of chasing a high I think Um, and the rabbit is this kind of skittish and gnostic figure throughout the pieces is kind of a metaphor for like the ways I was living my life yeah yeah you're going to read I think a poem from the first section uh, of the of the book uh, so we can see how you change as a writer ac- across this like long period of years. Mm. So um, this uh, poem's called Museum Island. Um, I wrote it um, shortly before I turned 30. I was having a classic turning 30 crisis um, <laughs> and uh, had been signed off work um, and was drinking far too much. Um, and I wrote it um, in... Norway at my good friend Lizzie's house um, he was living in Norway at the time in a place called Museum Island um, Museum Island it's the last week of my 20s so why should I care what the weather does the weather doesn't give a shit about me you said all of this is me shedding my skin before I take a turn I imagine myself on the dance floor of a themed party you won't throw me oh there goes that brat again she's in her 20s But really this year feels more like I'm throwing up history. And sometimes my life is too hot to stand up straight in and I want to run red-legged down the stairs. But I can't get out of this tub, just wheel myself from place to place, crying and slippery and a bad thing to look at. How strange and crappy for you to have to live with my face so often when for me it's something I glimpse and shed like a t-shirt or to have to hear me at night in your ear, voiced higher and sadder than I imagined it to be. I do whine like a dog whenever you go and you do always seem to be going, keys smashing on the concrete on the wrong side of the door. All of this living and waking is so unbearable, can't find the cold tap and sleeping feels like drowning. Today the light plays us off against each other and your head's a halo and I'm all in shadow and as I slip into and under the night like a sheet of paper I will see your face, your mouth opening, a great neon silent O and tomorrow we'll wake up gasping, retch white wine into the sink and then go to the National Museum and stare at 400 years of paintings of mountains and midnight sunlight and buy you a postcard with a photograph of a bum on it because I want you to know I love you and I'm trying to tell you something and I miss your screaming light. Well, it's really full-on, isn't it, listening to that now? Because mm. I know that poem really well uh, from from the time that we were together. And it's weird also for me trying to put myself into a sense of feeling when I've sort of got my professional hat on. Mm. Uh, when that was written at a really, really difficult uh, time in our 
relationship. As you say, that was sort of at the juncture where things started to go really, really south. The decision to include a poem from our time together was made at the last minute. We chose it to show the difference in Sophie's writing across time. But while she was able to articulate this difficult period of our lives and was being brave and vulnerable reading the poem out, I'd gone into shutdown. I didn't know how to respond. I well remembered our conversations while she was away in Norway, marked by confusion, longing and sadness. I'd been short of work, so I didn't go. Then she went and I wished I had. And that's how it always was. I just loved her company. I couldn't give her enough, but I couldn't let her go either. That poem, that line, Your Screaming Light, still rouses such deep and complicated feelings that I find it hard to be near it. Um, So, what, that's sort of around 2013, maybe? 15. 15, 15, isn't it? 2015. Yeah. But that's sort of before the sort of true descent into diction. A lot more happens mm. between that period. And then um, the next poem that you're going to to read. Um, yeah. And I wonder, can you talk to me about this? This um, Getting sober has obviously been a really long process for you, yeah. right? Uh, were you worried about um, how getting sober was going to affect you as a writer? Definitely, yeah, because my introduction to the world of um, poetry and performance art and art making um, was really like a coming of age thing. Um, And I had from the beginning associated creativity with hedonism, like a lot of people. I feel like it's a real cliche. Mm. And yeah, I was really worried that I would become really boring. I didn't know who I was without alcohol and drugs. and particularly alcohol I just felt alcohol was such a part of my daily life and I didn't have any friends that were sober I didn't know how to write being sober I think a lot so much of my creative life had been about like late nights at the kitchen table with like a bottle of wine Mm. um and yeah I was I was terrified of getting sober and I was terrified about what it would do to my personality and what it would do to my work um my experience has been so different to that my experience has been that the time where I was trying to get sober and then got sober and the first year of sobriety was some of the most productive years of my life. 2016 and 17 um, were those years where I was really um, mostly sober but had a couple of like horrific relapses in 2017. Um, and yeah, since then, since 2000, I've been sober continuously since 2000, summer 2017, which is when I'm going to, when I wrote this poem I'm going to read now. Um, and yeah, my experience has been that my work has changed a lot but and my personality has changed a lot, but um, and it hasn't been an easy road, but it feels radical in its own way. Mm. Like it's, you know, life's hard sober, like with unmedicated. And obviously there are other ways of like numbing out and not feeling things, but um, it has um, been pleasantly surprising on the whole in terms of how it's enabled me to focus and to um, be awake to things. So give me a little, we're gonna read a poem called Art in America, right? Mm-hmm. Where were you in your life when you wrote this poem? I was in a, um, I was in a bin on fire. (laughs) (laughs) Um, um, I I moved to New York for a few months to um, try, in the 12-step fellowship, it's known as a geographical. Basically, the the idea that you can you can move to a new place and become a new person. Um, I didn't know who I was in Norwich. I was a bit bitter about moving to Norwich at first. I love it here now, but um, I missed London. I missed being in an international city. And I felt as though um, if I could move to New York, I would be a different person. And it just so happened that this, this, this much older person I was sort of obsessed with at the time lived there. Um, but they didn't really want anything to do with me um, by this point. Um, and uh, I just thought I'd, I was incredibly, I was grieving a lot for our relationship. Mm. I was grieving a lot for um, the life I'd left behind in London. Um, I was really lost, I was really lonely. Um, And I, um, after a year of being sober, I just broke down in New York and I started drinking and taking drugs again and it was an absolute disaster. Um, And I was um, really just trying to find myself and find some reason to carry on and some, some kind of, hope I was trying to kind of find something to grip onto and not not completely able to um but this poem really helped save my life um so yeah it was written from a really dark place but it um 
absolutely saved me. Um, and it's the thing I'm proudest of having written. Okay, well, let's hear it. <clears throat> Art in America. At dusk each day, I like to think of all my new friends in different parts of the city, jerking off, running baths, vaping weed, getting sober, running their mouths and reading poetry aloud to one another. Alice says I have the right to repeat myself, so I do. Alice says you can cry if you need to, so I do. She looks away, scrolls pictures of dogs on Instagram, and we watch the traffic dancing towards the bridge, everybody on their way somewhere. I want to go far. Jameson says, I know you know it will get better. I nod, closed-mouthed, in a gesture I believe to convey quiet bravery. Too little, too late. It's so hot and so close you can almost lick the weather's face today. Steam rises off the East River. In a film, God kills herself by removing her own intestines. I don't have the guts to watch it. Jameson's poems are so rangy, on the bench like a godhead. My mother's arm is broken and strapped to her side on Skype. My dad calls me baby in a text when he's drunk. I don't know what this means. God's suicide scene. At the cinema last night, we didn't understand a thing, but we're so happy just to be there, not on our way anywhere. I want to go far, far. In the film, the film said loving someone was the only thing to do. And in it, one of the characters describes the music he listens to as soupy. It's a bad translation. Corrie laughs and makes a joke in French. Un soupçon. The film begins and ends with a woman covered in blood. And Andrew says maybe we're supposed to understand it all backwards. I guess that's how love works too. It's all faith until the end and then you see it later for what it is or wasn't, what it could have been, the whole trick. When I see your face or hear your name, I want to pass out from love, from sadness, from shame and from regret. When I arrived in America, I wished simply to drown in feeling and forget about work. But then I got so wet I had to start swimming. Steam rises off the East River. John Giorno says it's not what happens, it's how you handle it. I chew on language here. Philly cheesesteak, Rockaway Park, Taconic State Parkway, restroom, sidewalk, mama I'm so tired. Some days I take secret photographs of Americana and feel like a normal alien. Alice and I talk on the bench while the sun sets and watch the lights in the apartment building opposite turn on one by one. Last week I drank bourbon and cried for four nights solid, soaking through my sheets, my t-shirts and the mattress over and over. Fevery dream in which I see a drunk woman, me, doing shots and snorting coke from a key. I tell her, let me help you. Then I open a wound on her arm and remove from the wound a giant plastic egg. I crack the egg to reveal a small wooden sphere and from it emerges a large white rat. Don't ask me how. I put the rat on a leash and walk it back to my apartment. I go to sleep in my dream petting the rat and I wake up feeling good. I give the rat breakfast which she eats happily. I kiss her head. I go back to the bar to find the woman, me, sicker than ever, thin, sweating, with two black eyes and a purple arm. I say, hey, what happened? And she says, you shouldn't have taken what you took the way you took it. You shouldn't have taken what you took the way you took it. You shouldn't have taken what you took the way you took it. I leave her on the floor to die. What do I care? I have my rat. Alice says I have the right to repeat myself, so I do. On the hot drive from Hudson, Kathy gets me to do impressions of different British accents and to describe the city I come from. When I get back to my apartment, I vomit in the kitchen sink, then the bathroom sink, then the toilet, then again in the shower. Pink ribbons of bile and wine. I am the only person at the John Giorno installation in Hell's Kitchen on a Wednesday afternoon, and I cry for 20 minutes watching him speak on a 20-foot projector screen. Thanks for nothing, America. I did it all without you. I sometimes wish a lesbian could be given this much room to do anything. You don't love me, and the feeling of not being loved comes in waves, steam rising off the East River. I kiss my rat's head, I am such a bad peach, seeing it all backwards, the world is so big, desire alone makes it small. There's nothing funny about being a lesbian today, on my hands and knees like juiced fruit, in prayer position at the gallery, the cinema, the bathroom floor. You shouldn't have taken what you took the way you took it. When I got back to the apartment, the rat was dr drunk. When I got back to the apartment, the rat jerked me off. When I got back to the apartment, the rat was me. Jameson gets me to stand on stage at the amphitheatre by the river to take a picture. Steam rises. I lose sight of him for a second and it's just me and the water and the bridge and the dog gently pissing. Self-help fake roomy poem says, only when I quit believing in myself did I come to such beauty. There's a power in loneliness I need to channel. There's a freedom in not being loved I need to channel. It's not what happens, it's how you handle it. I came to America to be a solid gold flower floating down the river and now reduced to repeating my own name out loud, my date of birth, where I live, the things I did today, splashing my face in the kitchen sink over and over. Honestly, I am sick of helping Jesus count days. My mother's limp white arm, the things she gave and took, 
Mama, I'm so sad. America begins and ends in blood. I want to go far, far, far. Sometimes I get off on meanness, the holding back of love that's bucking against the gate. Penny Arcade says that when she came to New York, she saw a sign at a head shop saying, you are a daughter of the universe. This city is mine just as much as it's anyone's. Today is my 32nd birthday. I wish I had never been born. Andy Warhol was a fraud. Fame is a kind of violence. Ambition makes me sick. I want to close every door. I don't care about Kathy Acker. I don't care about anything anymore. There's no art in America. It's all sugar and war. I shouldn't have taken what I took the way I took it, but listen, wherever in the world, if I never see you again, always on your way somewhere, I will love you gently the whole length of my life. I want nothing for you but endless poetry, easy people, slow morning, strong coffee, dynamic emoji, time to read, dancing dog, uncracked screen, mountain, bunny, a million years, deep sense of peace, and somebody who loves you for free. When she sees your animal grace, your swagger, the way you open fruit, oh, I am glad to have known you, my devastating weakness, my white rat, my river of gold, and my old, wild American heart. Thanks so much for reading that, Sophie. Oh, it's a tough one to read. Yeah, oh, it's so long. It's like lot, like yeah. I start reading it and I sort of like it stirs up something in me, and then I realise I've got like five pages to go. Yeah, I wrote that poem uh, between binges, so I had already um, gone on one big binge, which began with like um, some drinks at a friend's on the fourth of July, and ended. Um, many days later in a lot of like shame and remorse um and then and I had just got sober from that incident when I wrote that poem but I had another few drinks in me obviously so my last um experience with alcohol was that was that um I went for a beer with a friend and ended up eight days later having been drinking continuously between that beer and and during those eight days um ended up trying to detox myself at home because I'd become alcohol dependent and ending up having a fit um and took myself off to hospital and was detoxed in hospital yeah Mm. and that was um thank god the last time I drank are there references in that poem to your decision to get sober for real for good when you thought that line you shouldn't have taken what you took the way you took it um yeah I think so I think there are lots of reference like there are lots of like glimmers of hope in that poem for me yeah um but I don't think um I think it's too frightening to ever think I've got sober for good you write about really difficult subjects like grief after death in your first book a relationship breakdown sexual assault and addiction and these are in fact some of the most sort of tough experiences we all encounter in our lives. And these are the very subjects that people struggle to talk about mm. and probably access poetry for. Mm. Um, how much do you think about the reader benefiting from your work? Have you ever had people coming back, coming to you and actually explicitly letting you know how they feel about your work? A lot of people do, actually, yeah. I get a lot of messages on Instagram and emails and stuff, yeah, and after readings. Not this year, obviously, but, um, yeah, yeah. I think people do um, feel a sense of um, kinship or connection. Um, I think people sometimes feel understood by the work, yeah, mm. because I'm talking about things that are hard to talk about. Um, and I think that it's permissive to, when I do that, make myself vulnerable in that way and express things that are hard to express, like... I wish I'd never been born, <laughs> which sounds very teenage when you take it on its own, but is is a legitimate mood. Um, it's permissive for people, I think, to connect with that part of themselves, um, and um, I think connection is important. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually, since we broke up, and thought more about our sort of relationship, and also you as a, not just as an ex partner but as a writer, um, realised that that you know, I find it very difficult to access my feelings. Mm. And I realise that actually your sort of vulnerability and the way that you're able to articulate your feelings on the page touches a certain thing in me, which mm. enables me to feel. Mm. Uh, and, I've, and that's both like my feelings, uh, but also 
because I know you, it also enacts a sort of sense of protectiveness yeah. over you. Uh, yes, as my friend. I think the way you've just phrased it as a permissiveness mm. is actually a really good way of describing describing that. It sort of unlocks a sense of feeling, certainly in me. Mm. Um, but, but it's also quite safe. In a way, you're kind of taking that load yeah. for, for the reader, which is quite rare. Is there sort of an, an extra emotional load at all? Um, sometimes, yeah, at live readings. Yeah. So I haven't experienced it for a while, obviously. Um, but yeah, when I was on, um, when I was on the book tour for Rabbit, I, I, I felt a lot of pressure to always read Art in America because I feel like it's the most well-known poem out of the collection. Um, but there's also this sense of like, people seem very attached to that poem and have their own reasons for being attached to it. Mm. Um, yeah, and there, I think there, there was, there is sometimes a sense that, um, I think in my, on my most pessimistic days, I sometimes feel as though I'm performing um, vulnerability for other people in mm. order that they don't have to perform it themselves somehow. But also, in a much more optimistic way, there is a sense of group catharsis and it is quite nice to read that poem in, a group, in front of a group of people mm -hmm. and have it resonate with them and feel held by that and understood. And so the connection goes both ways, I think. I think people... You know, I, I am allowing other people to access that feeling in them, but by allowing them to access that feeling in them, I'm no longer alone in that feeling. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah it does. But there's such vulnerability to... Vulnerability to just putting what you do on paper but let alone then reading it out to people yeah uh re repeatedly can that be is it is there a risk of re-traumatizing yourself as a result of doing that absolutely and um the um first time i tried to read art in america out was when i was in the middle of this cycle of like binges and trying to get sober again and um I did a reading with a really good friend of mine, Sia Conrad, at McNally Jackson in Manhattan, and it was like a hot New York day. It was like fucking 35 degrees or something. And um, I was still detoxing, um, and I tried to read Art in America about a week after I'd written it in front of like, you know, a huge group of people. It was a, it was a, launch, it was a magazine launch for like the White Review, I think. Um, and I couldn't read it. It was too much. It was too. It was like I had like proper PTSD reaction to it. It's the first time I went blind from panic. Yeah. And I had to cut my reading short. And um, I waited about a year to read it. I don't think I read it again in public until the book launch. So a year and a half. Um, and for sure, for particularly with Art in America, but with quite a few of the poems in the book, I've had to leave it quite a long time between writing it and sharing it with anyone, because it can feel re-traumatizing for sure. Um, and a question I got asked a lot on the book tour was about. Um, how I protect myself from that and the truth is I didn't enough and it's something that I would like to do yeah and I also think there might be a point in my career the, the new book I'm writing is um honestly very, on a very similar subject to rabbit again it's about addiction and recovery mm -hmm. um but it's prose so I'm telling the stories of it. The, the new book is uh titled prairie oyster at the moment um mm. and it's about um three famous um addicts and alcoholics who died of their addiction so um, the silver screen actor Veronica Lake, the um, uh, loved actor River Phoenix um, from the 80s and 90s, and then um, the 1970s folk singer Judy Sill, um, also known as the original Lady of the Canyon before Joni Mitchell came along. Um, so the book's in three sections, and it tells lo love a three-section book, um, and it's about um, this. Each section tells a story. Um, so the first section is about Veronica Lake, the second section is about River Phoenix, the third section is about Judy Sill, um, and alongside their story I tell part of my own story. Mm -hmm. um, and after this book I might be done mining my own life for work for a while, yeah. because it's really exhausting. <laughs> and I feel compelled to do it and I think I'm good at it, but um, I do wonder if there will be a point in my career after this current book where I might be interested in, in, in writing fiction or... Um, in exploring things that aren't my own trauma because I think there is something quite um, difficult about constantly mining my own life for trauma and I've also created a life for myself that is a lot more stable yeah. and a lot more boundaried and a lot more um, safe to, to help me recover because I do have PTSD from all of those experiences and I do have a lot of trauma um, 
and so yeah to keep myself sober and safe I've kind of built a very different life for myself these days and it's a lot more domestic and a lot more quiet and a lot more stable and so um uh that's great for me in terms of my life expectancy but maybe not so great for for work you know so it might be that after this book I I'm it might be good for my mental health to not keep returning to the most difficult times in my life to make work from how much do you think about the impact on other people that you reference in your poetry and now your your sort of upcoming um, upcoming prose. So for me, I always knew that our relationship was going to feature in potentially feature in your poetry because I met you and I really knew that you'd written two books that touched on your previous relationships. So that was always sort of a given. Um, but in terms of other people like your family members or friends is it do you ever think oh maybe I shouldn't go there maybe they're gonna be upset about that I do yeah but I feel compelled to go there anyway (laughs) (laughs) yeah I do worry about it I worry about my family a lot yeah yeah um I worry about my need to um express the specific ways in which um my childhood was traumatic versus not wanting to um, give my parents a hard time um, or shame them in public. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think in general, I feel it most acutely with my family, but um, for sure, um, my romantic relationships and my friendships too. Um, wanting to balance being true to my own experience um, with um, not wanting to publicly shame people who honestly are just trying to live their lives. Um, your upcoming book is deeply um, personal now in a way uh, in poetry you're able to um, hide some of your experiences Mm -hmm. through imagery and the way you structure them it's kind of up to readers interpretation about what's going on in there and how how it makes them feel whereas with prose it's much more direct Mm -hmm. Um, how have you found that process of moving from um, poetry to prose? Um, does, it, does he think it makes it you more vulnerable because you can't hide? Yeah, in some ways. But in other ways, it's a relief to be able to just fucking say something. Like, <laughs> to be able to say things. Yeah. Um, so there is a catharsis in... I think we do find catharsis through storytelling. Like, to you know, um, I remember after after my Erin, my first girlfriend, died, I had a lot of grief counselling and you know I was basically paying someone to just tell them the story of her death over and over again and I think people do you know anyone who's knows someone who's um going through grief you know whether that's like a divorce or a breakup or a death knows what it's like to be a friend of that person and part of being a friend to that person is having to listen to the same story quite a few times and just you know go over the same events so there is a catharsis to narrative to, to storytelling so that's quite nice because um, I don't have much narrative in in my poetry um, but it's also something I'm not used to so I've noticed that I'm very good at like describing a scene you know setting a scene and describing how it feels and not very good at like I don't sometimes don't understand how to get a person from one place to another like how to describe events because <laughs> yeah. there aren't really events in, in my poems um, so yeah in some ways there are less there are fewer places to hide and it feels as though when you state something in prose nonfiction, it's a fact. Well, it's called nonfiction, I guess. But like when you say, you know, this happened and then that happened, it feels like freighted with like a lot of responsibility. Like it could be libelous if you if you're saying something mm-hmm. happened when it didn't. But then there's also a desire to protect myself a little bit, particularly when I'm talking about the events of my own life, um, by simplifying things and. Um, uh, distancing myself a little bit just by um, making the narrative a little bit more easy to digest or something yeah so in some ways it's it's a relief to be able to just say things mm. but in other ways um, for sure it's a really different experience and there are fewer places to hide yeah yeah so what are some of the what are some of the experiences that you talk about in your um, upcoming book that you haven't necessarily directly addressed or uh, excavated within your poetry um, a lot of childhood trauma yeah um, and a lot of the the very gory details of my 
um, rock bottom and my relationship with alcohol. Um, I think part of recovery from addiction is honesty. Um, I don't necessarily think that honesty needs to be like public, um, but um, it's only with, you know, three, four years of distance that I'm able to start being honest about the most secretive parts of my addiction. The drinking and the drug taking that happened alone in rooms. Um, Do you think you're going to surprise a lot of people with that? Because I, I say this as, as someone who sort of knows and cares about you, having read a small amount of the prose, I found it sort of more arresting than a lot of your poetry that these terrible things have happened to you. Mm. Uh, and it feels awful to read those and think, oh, I wish someone had been there, or I wish I had been there, or I can't believe that Sophie was on her own. And, yeah, it feels... It, it was quite sort of shocking, and it was really upsetting to read some of those um, experiences. You're not the first person who's told me, like, that you've read a short extract and been quite shocked. Um, and I don't think the book is just shock, because I think that would be exhausting. It's just very honest. Mm. And actually, going back to what we were talking about in terms of how your poetry, I guess, helps people access feelings or gives people words to deal with really difficult emotions, you know, bravery about talking about your um, your childhood and also your um, addiction, uh, you know, that's also going to be helpful to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. People are going to really identify that with what you're saying. Like, other people will have gone through what you've gone through as well. Yeah. On the subject of connection... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> On the subject of connection... Uh, like a lot of people this year, you've had to um, adapt your working practices. I wonder if you can mm. tell me about your writing workshop devotion. So I've had a lot of requests for writing workshops. I know a lot of writers have moved some writing workshops online and, and, and people have wanted to, I think, engage with creative practice in different ways this year because of being isolated, um, because of probably trauma too. Um and because whilst it's been really, really difficult, the amount of isolation we've all experienced this year, it's also been an opportunity, I think, to connect with people through, because it's, because online connection has become so normalised. Mm. It's a donation-only programme and we've made it financially viable whilst allowing um, people to take part for free if they would like to. Yeah. So, yeah. I was really inspired by Ariana Rines' Invisible College, which began with um, a um, process that Ariana called Rilking, where we all read the Duino elegies together, and it was a daily practice. Um, and Sorry, daily, what are they? Sorry, the Duino, the Duino elegies by, by Rilke, yeah, Raina Maria Rilke, um, which I love, and, and the Duino elegies were a big inspiration for my first book, the, the book of sonnets. Um, yeah, so um, I'm really, really interested in a daily practice. Like, the way that traditional creative writing is taught is in weekly, long sessions where we um, read each other's work and give each other feedback um, and I wanted to move away from that once a week thing and think about um, devotion and, and um, a big part of devotion is dailiness I think um, devotion is something that um, we commit to over and over again right like to, to be devoted is to is to always return mm-hmm. um, and um, I think that daily practices have kept me sane this year and so much of um, thinking about something as being a daily thing rather than a weekly or a monthly thing um, has been really important to me. And that's how sobriety is framed, right, in, tw- in terms of the 12-step programme is one day at a time. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I became interested in, in this kind of shorter daily practice um, as a way of um, uh, have, ha- having a kind of um, workshop that could be inclusive. Um, and so much emphasis in traditional education it, it, of creative writing is it, placed upon um, the feedback model where like you submit a finished piece of work or a work in progress. Everybody reads it, makes notes and comes back and discusses it. And whilst I think that is a perfectly valid way of um, uh, learning as a writer what works and what doesn't work, sometimes I worry that we don't put enough emphasis on the process itself um, and our sense of commitment to that process and our sense of commitment to our own practice. Um, and I think so much of um, what holds us back is is that whilst we all, whilst many of us want to be creative, I feel like actual space and time to be creative always falls to the bottom of the list. Like, because we need to do our paperwork and we need to clean the house and we need to pay attention to the news and scroll through Instagram. And, and I think that... Um, I hope it's a gift that I can give people 
but that we all sit there for an hour and a half a day and let ourselves be dedicated to our practice and let ourselves be devoted to our practice together. Thanks for joining us on Consuming Culture and to my contributor, Sophie Robinson. Thanks also to my editor, Dan Bolger. Make sure to visit us on Instagram, where you can see artwork especially commissioned for this series. If you don't want to miss future shows, then do subscribe. And while you're at it, if you liked it, we'd appreciate your rating. See you next time. Baby.